Tonight, we're going to knock off Hanukkah and Purim. Shouldn't be too difficult. Um, and, and that's a proper proportion, really, to be frank, because to give two sessions to Tishri and one session to those two um, is probably spending too much time on those two. Um, because neither Hanukkah nor Purim are really big, significant, reverberant events in the Jewish calendar, actually, although they become so, not least because of our infantilizing tendency of our Judaism, uh, so that we tend to behave as if the most important things about Judaism are stuff that kids enjoy. Which, of course, reminds them all the time that when you become an adult, you can give it up. All right. Uh, one of the most destructive tendencies of our community currently is to suggest that Judaism is mainly for children. Right? And therefore we put Hanukkah and Purim up on some mountaintop of great celebration and fanciness, and we don't know what to say about the really important things. Right? So uh, that's, uh, if I seem to express a certain level of contempt for Hanukkah and Purim, it's because of that. Right? Nevertheless, they have some kernels of interest to them, and I'll um, try and uh, uh, address those uh, now. Hanukkah first. Let's deal with Hanukkah. It's... Um, it's not the earlier event, of course. The events of Hanukkah took place in around uh, 162, 165, some dispute about the exact year, BCE, BCE. So um, some 150 years before, or 200 years before the Christian start of Christianity. Um, and the story of Hanukkah really begins about 150 years before that. It begins in the 300s. Handy date to remember, 333, right? Easy to remember, 333 BCE. Um, 333 BCE is the time that Alexander the Great gets going, right? Alexander the Great is actually not a Greek, although we think of him as a Greek. Um, Alexander the, uh, the Great was a Macedonian. Macedon, uh, Macedonia is a place to the north of Greece, rather wild uh, mountainous place um, then and now. Um, and Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, um, came south and conquered Greece. Greece had gone into a rather um, hedonistic mode, uh, rather lost its way, and Philip came and conquered Greece. Um, and I think most Greeks saw Philip arriving rather as the sort of Europeans saw the Vikings arriving, you know, a bunch of, of, uh, of savage. Um, primitives coming into this civilised place. But Philip was not quite as primitive as people perhaps expected because as soon as he arrived in Greece he was completely knocked out by it. He was overwhelmed by the culture of Greece. And so rather than just kind of conquering it and leaving a few people in charge and going back to his mountain uh, fortress in, in Macedon, he established himself in Athens. And he became, as so many converts do in many ways, more Greek than the Greeks. And he had a son, Alexander. And he was determined that his son, Alexander, would be brought up as a great Greek. And Alexander, indeed, had an excellent tutor who you may have heard of. His name is Aristotle. And, um, and Alexander was given all the best that you could possibly imagine of Greek culture. Alexander was also remarkably an astonishingly skilled military tactician and commander. And when Philip died, Alexander took over, and Alexander then embarked on a major campaign of conquest, mostly eastwards. I mean, he also conquered uh, the eastern Mediterranean, the bits around Greece, really. Didn't go west into Italy and along that way, but 
um, mostly eastwards. And in fact, eventually, he got as far as India. That's a pretty remarkable thing. When you think these guys are walking, all right? Just don't forget that. They're walking. I mean, there's a few folk on horses, but they can't go very fast because they've got to wait for the folk who are walking coming up behind, right? They're walking, and they walked to India from Greece. That's quite a stroll, right? And they conquered all of this territory. And everywhere that Alexander went, he instituted Greekified cities. He, he said his conquest plan was not only military power, not only economic power, but cultural hegemony. And he spread everywhere he went the Greek culture that he loved. This process was called, after the Greek word for Greece, which is Hellas, it was called Hellenization. And he spread Hellenization all around, almost one might say, the known world. Now, of course, he didn't uh, persuade everybody to become Hellenized immediately, but nevertheless, in every place, he left Hellenistic leaders, leadership, governors managing different provinces in this huge empire, and Hellenistic cities, which were built and designed along Hellenistic ideals and with Hellenistic architecture and Hellenistic gods and Hellenistic literature and Hellenistic approaches to life in general. Um, aspects, I mean, not all Greeks, of course, were Democrats, as they had been in, say, Athens, um, so you couldn't say too much about the necessary political order of things. But nevertheless, Hellenism, with its philosophy, with its culture, with its science, was spread all over this empire. And while, no doubt, your average Egyptian peasant or your average Afghan peasant just kind of got on with life as it had ever been, the upper classes, the ruling classes in the various different places, became very influenced by this Hellenization. Um, so much so that we find lots of cities scattered around called things like Alexandria, which of course named after Alexander. Fourteen, um, hmm? Fourteen cities named Alexandria. Fourteen cities, there you go, I didn't even know that. Right, fourteen cities, thank you, uh, named Alexandria. Oh dear, I've got an expert. Oh, it's going to be a problem now. Usually I can just talk, you know, but now I've got an expert, it's going to be a problem. Um, so Fourteen cities named uh, Alexandria, and, and that immediately gives you the lie that these are places which were, if not created, they may have been originally cities on those sites, but nevertheless developed along the lines that Alexander spread. Unfortunately, Alexander died young. And uh, as a result of that, um, he did not really have time to embed his empire as an empire. Uh, and so after he died, the empire effectively broke up into the diverse provinces that had been created as administrative areas. Um, two of those provinces uh, were the Ptolemaic province, uh, the Egyptian province, let's say, and the Seleucid province, um, approximately Syria, uh, that northern kingdom. I think some of you will have heard me say in other lectures that you, to understand the Middle East, you simply have to understand... We haven't got pen. OK, I'll draw it for you. Um, you have to understand that um, if this is the land of Israel, OK, up here is the northern kingdom, Mesopotamia between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, Right? Um, whether it's the Sumerians or, or the 
Mesopotamians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Hittites or whoever it is who takes over this spot from time to time, there's a northern empire, right? And down here is Egypt. Israel, of course, caught in the middle. As the rabbis point out, this place well irrigated by rivers, this place well irrigated by rivers, the Jews have to hope God sends rain. Right? Very important in, in rabbinic thought that the land of Israel was a place at the mercy of God. Right? One way or another, anyway, and we've now got the, the, the territory divided up again between these two provinces, the Ptolemaic province down here and the Seleucid province up here. Land of Israel in the middle. Right? The Jews not particularly powerful at this point in time. They've always been under somebody's control. Um, more, most recently, probably the Persians. Um, and now they find themselves exposed to this Hellenistic culture. Originally in the Ptolemaic area, but eventually the Ptolemaic group became rather weak and the Seleucids took over. Let's uh, accelerate the process. Um, and so, nevertheless, the Jews were as you would expect, in Jerusalem, because they didn't really have a lot of other territory, but in Jerusalem, the Jews were highly influenced by Hellenism. The Jews have never been reluctant to integrate with and indeed assimilate with the cultures that come their way. Right? Um, and, and that was true about Hellenism as much as anything else. And so Jews started to Hellenize. Um, that meant that they built... Uh, uh, Gymnastic amphitheatres and, um, and, and theatres, indeed, in Jerusalem. And it led some of the more religious to feel rather uh, uneasy about this, to the point that they became not just uneasy, but downright um, oppositional to it. And a group grew up called the Hasidim, not to be confused with the Hasidim, OK? Um, a group grew up which, which called themselves the Hasidim, and I suppose to some extent, we might call those nowadays the Haredim. These were the people who did not want to give in to the inroads that this culture was making. We have to remember that there were many aspects of Hellenism which were deeply antipathetic to Jewish principles and ideals. Attractive though all sorts of aspects of it might be, there were certain aspects which were deeply antipathetic. For example, it was polytheistic. Or maybe at its highest levels of, uh, of, of philosophy, it was atheistic. There was no belief in uh, God, a creator God particularly, not interested in that. Not much interest in the idea of a kind of uh, um, objective ethics. The famous statement by the fifth century uh, Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. And you, you'll decide what's right by the way human beings feel about it. That's anathema to Jewish thought. Man's not the measure of all things. Right? So those kinds of things. And of course, there were other more bizarre, but in some ways more evident examples of what was um, in conflict here. In the athletic games, you know, the body beautiful is a big deal in Greek thought. Depends on the body, I guess. But I mean, that was nevertheless the general principle. And athletes, of course, were the very highest ideal of human activity. And that's why we've got so many sculptures of people slinging javelins and discuses and being about to run and jump and so forth. Because they just thought that was beautiful, and it is. And being beautiful, the thing to do was to compete in the nude. And all Greek athletes, and of course we're only talking about males here, all, there were no female Greek athletes, but all Greek athletes competed in the nude. 
Now, Jewish men wanted to compete as well. Whether they were any good at it, who knows, right? But, but they wanted to compete as well. And if they were going to compete in the nude, it would immediately become evident that they were circumcised. And in the Greek mind, the body beautiful is the body beautiful, not mucked about with. And therefore, circumcision became a big embarrassment for these Hellenizing Jews who wanted to be part of Hellenistic culture. And there they were scarred with this ancient primitive Jewish thing. So um, they started to wear false foreskins. I have no idea how they worked, all right? But just take my word for it, they did. I don't know whether you bought them in a pack of six or what you did, I have no idea, right? But they started to wear false foreskins in order to mask their Jewishness. Now, in some ways, bizarre though that is, you can't have a clearer example of what was wrong. Right? That these Jews couldn't participate in these athletic competitions without somehow masking their Jewishness. That's why the Hasidim knew this was not right. right? And so a conflict grew up between the Hellenizers and the Hasidim. And this conflict broke out into open war. A civil war, effectively. I mean, admittedly, we're talking about within a town and not a particularly armed group, so they're probably mostly slinging stones at each other and so on. But nevertheless, conflict. The ruler of this province at the time, a chap called Antiochus Epiphanes, or well, he was called Antiochus, but he called himself Epiphanes. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, got a message of this. He's up in Syria. Um, he got message of this conflict and misunderstood it. He thought that what was happening was that it was a rebellion against him. He didn't read it as a cultural rebellion. He saw it as a, as a military, political rebellion. Rebellion against him. And therefore, he sent his soldiers in to suppress the rebels, that is, the Hasidim. Right? And not only did he send soldiers in to suppress the rebels and reinforce the garrison in Jerusalem and so on, he decided that he would stop the Hasidim in their tracks in terms of their attempts to promote Judaism, and he banned a range of Jewish practices, not least teaching Torah and circumcision, keeping Shabbat and various things like that. And he also took over the temple in Jerusalem, which had been, was standing, took over the temple and defiled it and erected a statue to Zeus in it and so on and upset everybody very severely. Well, you know, Jews don't mind Hellenizing. You all know that. We've done it, right? Jews don't mind Hellenizing, but we might be a bit more upset if somebody wants to start banning circumcision and, and so forth, right? And suddenly, what might have actually, if he'd left it alone, if he'd learned what Alexander knew, which was that Hellenism kind of works, just leave it, right? And to impose Hellenism is the most un-Hellenistic thing you can do. Right? But he did it, and it led to a revolt against him and his forces. And now you all know the story. This is the Hanukkah story. The Maccabees, right, starting with, uh, um, uh, um, what's his name, Matatiao, uh, Matathias, and his sons, uh, Matathias, they're all Kohanim, right? They're priests. Um, and they, they kill somebody who calls upon them to perform a heathen sacrifice. They take to the hills and they embark on a, on a guerrilla war against the Assyrians. Now, notice I'm not using the word Greeks. Because although we keep being told that we fought against the Greeks, there probably wasn't a Greek in sight. Right? These are not Greeks. These are Hellenists. Greekifiers. Right? The Greeks are in Greece. Right? These are Syrians, Middle Eastern folk. Right, who've adopted Hellenistic modes, 
right? So we're not fighting Greece, the country, or Greek, the people. We're fighting Greekiness, the idea, okay? And, um, and so the battle is fought, as you know, and uh, eventually um, the Maccabim, the sons, uh, this word Maccabim, meaning the hammers, um, uh, are victorious. Um, in a limited way, in quite a modest way, really, initially, they managed to push everybody back out of the temple and then slowly out of Jerusalem, although a, a, a garrison remains on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then, because Antiochus Epiphanes is actually weakening quite severely and the whole Seleucid setup is becoming quite weak, eventually push them out, push them out, and push them further and further and further until eventually the descendants of the Maccabim, who are by now called the Hasmoneans, um, become uh, rulers of an increasingly large territory to the extent that eventually the Hasmoneans rule over a larger territory than the Jews have ever held since Solomon. <coughs> right? So it's, in the long run, I mean, it's, but it takes quite a while. It doesn't all happen overnight. Um, but in the long run, they're, they're militarily and politically hugely successful. Sadly, they are not personally or ethically hugely successful. They're a pretty rum bunch altogether, actually. The Hasmoneans are not people you would like to spend time with. All right, they squabble and they attack each other in all the worst forms. And they do some very, 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 very naughty things in, terms, in Jewish terms. Let me give you an example. Everybody knows that the ruler of the Jewish people is descended from David, and he's from the tribe of Judah, right? Therefore, you cannot be king unless you're descended from David, the tribe of Judah. The Hasmoneans are, we said, Kohanim. That means they're from the tribe of Levi. So they cannot be kings. But, you know, they wanted to be. Right? So they basically became so. And not only that, they became Hellenistic kings. How bizarre is that? They started wearing, you know, togas and purple and gold and stuff, all the Hellenistic stuff. They minted coins with their names on them. That's very Greek. One even tried with his head on it. That is what we call, in Jewish terms, breaking the Ten Commandments. It's the high priest fellow. Right? And, and they had, and within two generations, they were called wonderfully Jewish things like Alexander Yanai, and John Hikarnus, and Aristobulus. How Jewish is that? They'd completely sold out to the whole Hellenistic game, having won. Right? Anyway, eventually two brothers couldn't decide who was going to be in charge of the whole thing, Aristobulus and John Hikarnus. Uh, they were the daughters, uh, the, the sons of uh, Salome, Jewish name that. Um, she was quite good, actually. She was the queen. She was the one queen in this whole Hasmonean thing, and she wasn't bad at all. But her two sons were just a waste of space. Anyway, they got on at each other's throats, and they couldn't decide who was going to be king. And so they sent to the local power broker, who was a Roman, because we're now in about the year 65, a Roman chap called Pompey the Great, mate and eventually enemy of Julius Caesar. And they invited him in to settle things. How stupid is that? Because if you invite the Romans in, as a general rule, they don't then leave. And they didn't. And that's how the Romans end up in the land of Judea. 
because the Hasmoneans invited them. Right? Um, a, a descendant of the Hasmoneans, it's not altogether clear how the kind of family tree works, and there's a lot of rabbinic work on, on that's an in-law and a, you know, a usurper and so on and so forth. But the, the last king of this Hasmonean group is a chap called Herod. Now, Herod, um, in the Hasmonean times, I told you, they expanded and expanded their territory. And they took over lots of places. And one of the places they took over, now all of this, we know all of this, because it's recorded in the book of the Maccabees, but also, books of the Maccabees, but also um, we know it because a lot of this information is to be found in other historical records of the time. So, so we can triangulate this stuff. So it is historical stuff in many ways, right? Um, but... Um, one of the territories that they conquered was a place called Idumea, right? The, probably descended from the Edomites. So if you go back through the biblical line, we go back to Esau, right? But don't worry about that. Anyway, this place, Idumea, which was not Jewish, they conquered it. And they gave them a fair and open choice, the Idumeans. They said, you can either leave or you can convert to Judaism. The Idumeans said, oh, all right, we'll convert to Judaism then. Now, it's not altogether clear what they were then required to do in order to convert to Judaism. But they converted to Judaism. How sincere that was, how committed they were, we have no idea. But what we do know is that a descendant of theirs was a chap called Herod. And the fact that he was half Idumean leads to a continuous grumbling that he's not really Jewish. Does that sound modern? <laughs> right? And what's interesting is this. When the Hasmoneans say to an entire people, the Idumeans, become Jewish, this is a completely new idea. The idea that you can become Jewish by adopting Jewish beliefs and cultures and behaviours. Completely new idea. You know where they got this idea from? Alexander. Alexander was the very first person on the planet who felt it was possible to project a culture without its ethnic, ethnic associations. That is, you could be Greekified without being Greek. Right? We still have difficulty with that. You know, can you be German without being German? Can you be French without being French? We, we have great difficulty with, can you adopt a culture without having the ethnic origins? Of course, places like America, which make no attempt to do anything with ethnic origins, or rather, rather embarrassed with anybody with ethnic origins in America, and therefore would rather not have that. Um, so places like America, or indeed to some extent places like Britain, which have political identities, you know, to be an American or to be a Briton is to carry a passport, not to make any statement about your ethnic identity. Your ethnic identity then has to be worked out after that. You're an Italian-American or, you know, whatever it might be, right? Um, but in Europe, certainly, and in most of the world, you are your ethnicity. The idea that you can adopt another ethnicity out of choice was Alexander's assertion about Hellenism and the Hasmoneans' assertion about Judaism, that you could adopt Judaism. Very strange. Yes, sir? Could 
Well, you could adopt... Yes, absolutely. I mean, people do adopt an ethos. I mean, we, we, we've certainly, um, you know, tried to project, not very successfully, things like democracy or whatever into places that uh, aren't accustomed to them. Um, but we overlook the intense ballast of a pre-existing culture uh, when we think we can do that. So it's often just a kind of overlay. And that's obviously what happened to the Idumeans. You know, go, oh, all right, then we've got to go to shul every Yom Kippur, so I suppose we'll do it. You know, and nobody really had any idea whether it really made any difference or not. And, and, and the Idumeans don't become part of the Jewish future. You know, who knows what happens to them? Um, nevertheless, that's the story uh, as we know it. And this is in the book of the Maccabees, as I say. And the books of the Maccabees, uh, the rabbis were making decisions about what books go into the Bible. Um, uh, well... There are three sections of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Bible. The Torah, it's pretty clear that there's not much dispute about the Torah by the time we're in Babylonian times. I'm not going to get any deeper into it than that. Okay? But it's pretty clear that by Babylonian times anyway, the Torah is there, fixed, no dispute. All right? um, the Nevi'im, the prophets, it's pretty clear that the books of the prophets are pretty fixed by Babylonian times. By the time we come out with, say, Ezra, somewhere in the 4th century or 5th century BCE, right, the prophets are pretty fixed, the books of the prophets. But then there's a whole stack of other books swirling around um, which might or might not make it into the canon. Obvious books, like the collections of uh, devotional poetry, which we know as the Tehillim, the Psalms, right? that's going to go in the Bible somewhere, pretty surely. Right? Other books, much less clear, a book like Job, which is deeply problematic. A book like Daniel, who knows what he was smoking, but it was strong stuff, right? Um, books like the book of Esther, you know, it's not very weird. What's that doing in the Bible, right? And things of that sort. Song of Songs, without any doubt whatsoever, an erotic poem, right, which makes it into the Bible. Thank God, because the brilliant Rabbi Akiva persuaded everybody it was actually an allegory for the relationship between the Jews and God. Right? Otherwise, it never would have got in there. Right? All of these books swirling around, nobody too sure whether they should go in or not go in. And other books, like, eventually, the books of the Maccabees. Right? Should they go in or should they not? Um, it's in about the second century, as the rabbis are kind of putting together the Mishnah, about that period... Uh, that the rabbis finally kind of discuss and say, look, we've got to fix this and decide. And they decide to leave out the books of the Maccabees. Right? And it's not altogether clear quite why, because if you read the books of the Maccabees, they're very religious works. They're very convinced that you know, God is, is involved in every moment of history and so on. Much more God-centered um, than, say, uh, the book of Esther. Much more God-centered. Much more God-centered even than the book of Ruth. Or the Song of Songs. Right? It's difficult to know why they left out Maccabees and not, except probably this. As I said, the Maccabees become the Hasmoneans, and the Hasmoneans become the ruling priesthood. Once the Romans are in, they are effectively the Jewish um, rulers with whom the Romans work. So they become the dominant uh, elite social group. Uh, the collaborators with the Romans. Um, and this is what eventually becomes known as the sort of Sadducean party. Right? We don't have time to go into the nature of the Sadducees. Um, but the, the, the largest group opposing the Sadducees, taking a different view on how Jews should be and work life out, is a group called the Pharisees. They're kind of the, the, the forerunners of what will eventually become the rabbis. 
Um, and and the uh, uh, you know history is written by the victors, isn't it? And once the temple's destroyed, that's the end of the Sadducees. They've got no power base. They're, they're priest orientated. So with the destruction of the temple by the Romans, there is no more Sadducean party, and they dissipate and disappear. And the Pharisees effectively are left holding the field. And um, and as you know, things unfold, and we get the Mishnah and the Talmud and so on and so forth. And we got that Pharisaic Judaism comes through uh, thereafter. These Pharisees are the guys who decide what goes into the, into the Tanakh, into the Bible. And they look at the book of the Maccabees, and this is a bunch of books or a pair of books that promote and enthuse about the quality and nature of the Maccabees as the great fighters for God. And quite probably the Pharisees just simply didn't want to do that. Furthermore, remember that they were doing this after the Bar Kokhba revolt, and the Bar Kokhba revolt was perceived by the Pharisees as such a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake because of the catastrophe that befell the Jewish people thereafter. And as a result, most probably, they also didn't want to have a book that suggested that rebellion and revolt was a desirable thing to do. They wanted to put that aside altogether. So much so that Hanukkah, the festival celebrating this rededication of the temple, um, is not mentioned at all in the Mishnah. It's simply not mentioned, right? Although we can be sure that the Jews were already marking Hanukkah in Mishnaic times. It comes up in the Gemara. The Gemara is the discussion on the Mishnah. Mishnah and Gemara together make the Talmud, right? And in the uh, and if you want to look something up in the Gemara, you're doomed. Because it just is not easy to look stuff up, right? Because the Talmud doesn't work like Greek stuff. <laughs> Greek stuff is very organised and logical, right? And therefore you have an index and it's alphabetical order and the things are under headings and you know where to find them and that's where they belong. And there's a thing at the back and you cross-refer and you find the page number. Not in the Talmud. The Talmud is like Jews talking over dinner, <laughs> all right? And as a result, you have no idea where things are going to crop up because the whole Talmud is a continuous... Oh, that reminds me. It's funny you should mention that because it reminds me of something, right? So you never know where to find anything. So where do we find Hanukkah? We find it, of course, under the discussion about Shabbat. Right? Because on Shabbat, we're discussing what, do you, what can you use to light the Shabbat lights, the, the, the Friday night lights. Right? Can you use this kind of weight? Can you use that sort of oil and so on and so forth? Right? So it's, a, it's an important discussion because the issue, the critical issue, the sum of it is that you can only use wicks and oil that do not lead to kind of a sputtering light. Because if you have a sputtering light, the tendency might be to want to correct it or fiddle with it. And of course, once you've lit it on Shabbat, you should leave it alone. So you should use only the purest oil, oil and the finest wicks. So, says a rabbi, is it the same with the Hanukkah lights? And that's where Hanukkah gets mentioned. Right? And the response in the Gemara is, my Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah? Right? And it then goes on to tell us. Hanukkah is the occasion when the, uh, it says the Greeks um, came to conquer uh, the Jewish people and suppress Judaism, and uh, it, the, the Jews drove them out, and we found one little pot of oil lasting for one day, and miraculously it lasted eight days, and so we were able to light the, the, the menorah. That's why we have Hanukkah. And it goes on to say that this is how we observe Hanukkah today. Right? What we do, I'm sure you all know this, 
what we do is we light a light and put it in the doorway, at the front door, opposite the mezuzah. So the mezuzah is on the right-hand doorpost. You put your big Hanukkah flame by the left-hand doorpost. Now, it needs to be out there publicly because what you are doing is you are broadcasting the miracle. It's very odd because this Hanukkah mitzvah is the only mitzvah which is required to be done publicly. That's why it's not just Chabad who invented this business of sticking up Hanukkiyot uh, all over the place. Right? It's required to be done publicly. As you probably know, in your own home, if you're lighting a Hanukkiyot, you should really put it in the front window. Right? It should be seen. It's an act of witness. It's probably the only piece of Jewish behavior which is required to be seen. Right? Yes? If, if menorah is seven, when did it become eight and then nine? Oh, well, right. They say in the Gemara, that's what you're supposed to do. You put light in the thing, one light there, every day of the festival of Hanukkah, which is an eight-day festival. Why is it an eight-day festival? We'll come to that in a minute. That's what you do. However, they say, there are some really from people, <laughs> right, who light a light for everybody in the household. So they might put out six lights out there or ten lights out there every day of the festival. There are some mahadrin la mahadrin, super from people, who light an additional candle, or additional light, they're not talking candles, they're talking oil, an additional light for every night of the festival. That's what the Gemara says. This is the only example in all of Jewish law where the commonplace practice has become what the Gemara calls the most extreme practice. In every other case, we follow the more lenient stance. And yet in this instance, we follow this extreme practice of lighting more lights. As you may know too, the two schools of Hillel and Shammai had a debate because Shammai said, very logically, because Shammai was always logical, but Shammai said, we should start with eight and work down to one because after all, that's what must have happened to the oil. Right? But Hillel, who's never logical perhaps, but always had the, the, the pulse of the people, knew how it felt rather than how it thought, right? Hillel said, nah, we're not worrying about the oil, we're worrying about the miracle. The miracle gets bigger every time. So you light more lights. But, guys, there was no miracle on day one. What's that? There was enough oil for one day. There was only seven days of miracle. So why do we have eight days? As we know, the original practice was just to light one light. For eight days. Why eight days? Well, the book of the Maccabees tells us. And it's got nothing to do with oil. The book of the Maccabees says nothing about the miracle of the oil whatsoever. And that's the book which is supposed to be recording what happened. The Gemara is written for 500, 600 years later. Right? What the book of the Maccabees says is that when the temple was defiled, the Jews were unable to keep the proper festivals. Right? And as a result, when they managed to get the temple back, the most recent festival which they had not been able to keep was Sukkot, Sukkot eight-day festival. And so what they did was they instituted an eight-day festival to celebrate the rededication of the temple. 
And that's why it's an eight-day festival, says the Book of the Maccabees. Maybe the Book of the Maccabees isn't telling the truth. You don't have to believe it. It's up to you. I don't know how it is in different liturgies, but certainly in the Orthodox liturgy, we have an extra paragraph that we put in for Hanukkah, in the Amidah and into the benching and so on and so forth. Right? And in that paragraph, you can scour it backwards and forwards, up and down, in order to find reference to the miracle of the oil. And it's not there. Right? In that old paragraph. But, guys, the fact that it doesn't mention the miracle, I don't want to destroy your entire Jewish commitment at this point, because <laughs> I've got to deal with Purim yet, right? Um, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to undermine your faith or your enthusiasm or your attractiveness to this, um, to this idea. Um, but the fact that it doesn't mention the miracle, it may simply mean that it was so obvious that everybody knew it. It wasn't worth mentioning. There's a huge amount of stuff that goes into the oral tradition that doesn't get written down. That doesn't prove that it wasn't there or that it was made up later or stuff like that. Right? The fact that the Midrash tells us the name of you know, Noah's wife or something doesn't mean to say that nobody ever knew it until some guy in the third century decided to make up a name. It might have just been known and it formally got written down. So we don't have to distrust the oral tradition. And indeed, nowadays, we're getting better and better at trusting oral traditions. We're discovering that an awful lot of stuff is recorded in ancient text that was never known. As you may know, um, most people thought that Homer's epics of the Iliad and the Odyssey were mere uh, legend. I didn't think they existed at all until a German grocer called Heinrich Schliemann decided to go out and dig about in the relevant territories and dug up Troy. And we go, where does that come from? Right? They thought it was a story. Right? Lord Byron, the poet, said a wonderful thing before Schliemann dug up Troy. Lord Byron said a wonderful thing in his uh, poem, epic poem, Don Juan. He says, I have stood on Troy and heard Troy doubted. Time will doubt of Rome. All right? So it's very important to remember, you know, what, what do we decide is mythology? What is decide is true? Okay? So anyway, that's your Hanukkah tale. Um, it might be interesting to note that the most Greek thing the Jews do nowadays is run their own Olympic Games. And what do we call them? The Maccabea. How do you think the Maccabees feel about that? They probably like it. Okay, so that's Hanukkah. Any questions about Hanukkah before we move on to Purim? Well, let me ask you one thing. Where's that coming from? Yes, sir. Yes. Two books. Two books of Maccabees. Only two? Yes. Four, two in the Apocrypha. No, the two books in the Apocrypha. That's all there is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's only two books. The Apocrypha is a collection of these books that didn't make it into the Tanakh, right? Um, and, uh, and the two books of the Maccabees go into the Apocrypha. It's because they're not in the Bible, so they're in the Apocrypha. Uh, I, there may be two other books that I've never heard of. Uh, but I, if they exist, I don't know where they are. I mean, I don't know where they're collected or recorded. In, in, in the Christian Bibles, where they print the Apocrypha? Yes, some, some Christians do, Catholics yes, and, some, yes, Catholics and Orthodox. The question is, is did, did the books only get preserved as being in any way biblical because they got into the Christian liturgy 
Christian uh, scriptures, or was there real, uh, was there a maintained apocrypha among Jews? Yes, it wasn't just the Christians who held on to them. The Jews took the, a number of these uh, apocryphal books seriously, and indeed you'll see, in, in, again, in the Talmud, the rabbis quite frequently quoting several of them. Um, especially things like Ben Chirach and so on. Um, they, 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 I mean, some of them are really very, very odd indeed. Um, but nevertheless, the Apocrypha was a collection of books that the rabbis considered had status, but not sufficient status to go into the Bible. So it's the rabbis who fixed the canon of the Bible, and the rabbis who fixed what goes into the Apocrypha. And presumably there must have been other books that didn't even make it into the Apocrypha, who, which have disappeared altogether. The church, of course, is formalizing itself at about the same time. So they accept the rabbinic judgments as to what's in and what's out, but they're not altogether convinced that the books which are out shouldn't also somehow be in. So therefore they retain, the more classical churches, the Catholics and the Orthodox, retain the Apocrypha as a separate section of the Bible. So they don't try and bang it into the Bible, they can't do that, but they retain it as a separate section. So that no Christian will doubt that the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Bible, but they will also um, be interested, or some will be interested in the Apocrypha. And there's also a New Testament Apocrypha as well, which is even weirder. Yeah? How, do you know why, how, why the Apocrypha, when we can Apocrypha, is to mean well, you're leading me into the byways of Greek, and I don't know enough. Um, but I assume that the word apocrypha, uh, to some degree, implies not completely trustworthy. Okay. Uh, that's my guess. Question, what language was Greek. <laughs> yes. Um, a lot of the apocryphal books are written in Greek. And that might be another reason why the rabbis felt that they were not authentic. Yes? At the end, could you talk a little bit, or I'd like to talk about how you observe Hanukkah in ways that are not Christmas? For example, oh. in Israel. Oh, well, you like a Hanukkah. It's to our military life now. You like a Hanukkah. In public places. And sing Mark's Here, everybody says, oh, you know, it's just Christmas. Yeah. But Again, we have for the first time an Israeli army and a military presence. It seems to me that's an important part of the country. Well, I was going to say, luckily here, Christmas isn't Christmas either, so that's kind of good. Um, so it's uh, kind of less confusing. Um, but but um, I, I think that uh, um, in Israel, Hanukkah is the winter festival. Let's just remember this, guys, I mean, in terms of the way the world works. Everybody needs cheering up in midwinter. Well, maybe you don't here because the sun's still shining. But in most of the world, everybody needs cheering up in midwinter. And therefore, um, the existence of festivals of light uh, in midwinter, whether it was the ancient um, Roman Saturnalia or the pagan British Yule um, or, or the, the uh, Gaul Noel um, or, or, or Christmas or Hanukkah or the Hindu Diwali, um, you know, these, these ideas, just as the, the sun seems to go out, uh, the celebratory optimism that actually it starts again, um, gives rise to that kind of 
whistling in the dark type of festival that, that we have. Um, so I think it's no surprise that Hanukkah falls at that time. Um, and to be frank, I'm not sure that it's altogether clear that the events of Hanukkah really happened in Kislev. Seems to me unlikely, actually. Well, it seems unlikely that military campaigns happened in midwinter. Right? They mostly didn't. Um, but that's only the same as Christmas almost certainly didn't happen at Christmas. Right? I'm not going to get doctrinaire about that. If we want to celebrate stuff, celebrate it when it suits. Um, so um, in Israel, uh, Hanukkah has, of course, taken on an awful lot of the kind of Western winter, uh, winter wonderland nature of things. Um, I don't know of any very special um, uh, Israeli army response or any of that kind of militaristic thing. I mean, rather disturbingly, uh, the Israeli army seemed to be, for a while, a lot more impressed by the story of Masada than it was by the story of Hanukkah. And they like Hanukkah. Well, they like Hanukkah everywhere they can, really. I mean, but that's just fun, isn't it? Um, uh, I, I, I don't think, as far as I know, I don't think Israel has particularly picked up Hanukkah in a more dramatic way than Jews anywhere else. Uh, and, and most Jews, therefore, have taken the Pharisaic stance, which is the essence of Hanukkah is not military, it's not heroic, the essence of Hanukkah is God saving the Jewish people, the few from the many, the, you know, and, and the miracle and, and all of that. So what the Pharisees wanted to do is they wanted to locate it back onto God and, and accentuate the miracle. Um, and, and that's clearly, I think, how most Jews do it now. Yeah, I mean, uh, responding to that business of light and the oil and you know all that thing. The, the, the Gemara version one. Right. Pen is mightier than the sword. Anything else on Hanukkah before we move on to Purim? Let's hear Purim and then we can answer. I'm sorry. Let's hear Purim and then. Okay, see, all right. Well, Purim is even more bizarre. Um, Purim happened... Um, <laughs> did it happen? Um, the, the story of Purim is located in around the 4th to 5th century BCE. All right, there's a lot of dispute about exactly which king Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is. Um, nobody really knows. Um, uh, and Mordechai is identified as third generation from the exile from Jerusalem in 586. Uh, if that's the case, that would put us around the year 500, each generation being about 25 years or something like that. Um, but we don't necessarily have to assume that the chronology given is a total chronology. That is, it could have skipped a couple of... It's not necessarily going to list every single name. So it might just give us the rough outline of the chronology in order to identify Mordechai essentially as a Benjaminite descended from those people who came out from, from the land of Israel at the time of the, the exile. So I don't think the chronology is clear. But one way or another, we have this story in the book of Esther. And all of you will know that this is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Um, except for the other book, of course, that doesn't mention God. <laughs> Nobody mentions that there's another book that doesn't mention God, but it is. It's the Song of Songs that doesn't mention God. Right? Um, but anyway, so the, the Book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Right? Um, and, um, and in this book, we have a classic 1001 Arabian Nights tale. It's a tale of intrigue in a court um, with all the... Um, 
ducks and dives of that kind of political intrigue. It is brilliantly told. I mean, it, 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 the whole thing, it was just so cinematic. I have no idea why somebody hasn't really gone to make a, an excellent film out of it. And the whole thing is just kind of meanwhile, just then, and, and it's really, it, it should, except we're so blasé about it, it should keep you on the edge of your seat, really, because just as it's got, right, there's some fabulous moments in it. But what's really odd is this. Mordechai, right, where does his name come from? Mordechai, it's not a Jewish name. Marduk, Marduk exactly. Marduk was the king of the Babylonian gods, right? Esther... Ishtar, exactly, the queen of the Babylonian gods. So what we've got here, these two Jewish heroes, are basically Christopher and Mary. <laughs> right? And what do we know about them? Mordecai, when he hears that there's a beauty contest, pimps his niece in. I mean, what kind of Jewish... Is that what a good Jewish man is supposed to do for a good Jewish girl? Is he not supposed to say, stay away from that, it's Traif, he's not Jewish, I'm not having it. Right? No, he doesn't. He goes, oh, get in there, girl. You might be in with a chance. You could marry a non-Jewish guy and eat trade for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, it's very odd, isn't it? Very odd. And, and we're supposed to overlook that. Go, oh, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. But it's supposed to matter, isn't it? I mean, put that against the Hanukkah story. She was supposed to fight to the death and refuse categorically, and if she'd been taken off to enter the beauty contest, she should have you know, gone on a hunger strike or thrown herself off the battlements or something or other. But not any of it. She goes straight in there, go, yeah, I think I can win this. <laughs> and then she goes, very odd. Haman knows. Oh, yeah, good, excellent. <laughs> that. Oh, dear, I can see this is going to deteriorate. <laughs> I'm pleased I kept pouring till last. <laughs> what are you drinking? Um, Haman knows that. Ah, got you there. Um, that. Um, Mordecai is a Jew. But strangely, it doesn't seem to be hugely known. It's very odd. Right? Or at the very least, his relationship with Esther is not known. Or where his relationship with Esther is known, it doesn't seem to reverberate on the fact that she's Jewish or not. Because people in the court seem to know that Esther is related to Mordecai, but they don't seem to get that Esther is a Jew. Well, what was going on there? Very strange. Of course, the whole thing is drunken from beginning to end, right? Achaz spends all his time boozing. Um, there's clues in it as to some serious politics that might be going on. Haman undertakes to wipe out the Jews and take all their property into the royal treasury. And Achaz thinks that's a good idea. Why does he need money in the Royal Treasury? Well, I'll tell you why. Because remarkably, oddly, he's just had a vast party. His party has lasted six months. A six-month party. What is he celebrating? He is celebrating that he has been on the throne. Now, we're about to have in Britain now, we're about to have the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. She's been on the throne for 60 years, and as a result, we've got an extra day off. <laughs> right? Achaz has a six-month party for all the people. It's not just the courtiers and whatever. He's got an extra party for the courtiers, which is a bit more extravagant, 
right? Six-month party. What's he celebrating? That he has been king for? Three years. Three years. <laughs> <laughs> it's madness. Right? Well, the minute you start into the book of Esther, you know you are in topsy-turvy land. You know this is mad land. It's just completely bonkers from beginning to end. Right? Nothing makes proper sense. But anyway, there you've got uh, the king, and as you know, he says that he wants his wife, Vashti, to come out and dance wearing the royal crown, and she refuses. The rabbis, beautifully in the Midrash, say that the reason why she refuses is because she was called upon to wear only the royal crown, right? And, and so um, she refuses to dance, she gets ditched, or maybe bumped off, it's not altogether clear, um, and, uh, and, and so the king holds uh, a beauty contest which Esther wins. Um, and so she becomes queen, or one of several queens, of course, because she's got a whole huge harem. Um, and Mordecai is uh, very pleased about this, because now he's got uh, somebody on the inside. He tells her, because we've all been taught, haven't we, to be proud Jews, don't mention that you're Jewish. <laughs> What's that about? I mean, how can you be proud of Mordecai? How can anybody think well of Mordecai? Does he ever do anything halfway decent? Well, he does do one thing. He overhears a couple of people um, plotting to kill the king, and he reports them. And as a result, they get captured and, uh, and beheaded, and the king's life is saved. Okay, fair enough. Um, that makes Mordecai a loyal citizen, doesn't it? And as you know, the story is recorded in the uh, book of the Chronicles, um, but the king, being a king, doesn't necessarily know every detail of what happens in his kingdom. Until one night he can't sleep. Now, Haman is very fed up with Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down to him. Because Mordecai is a Jew. Folks, there is nothing in Jewish law that prevents somebody from bowing to a, a, a superior in the social structure. Right? You're supposed to, if you meet the queen, you're supposed to bow. I don't know what the protocols are here, but if you're supposed to bow, if you meet the president, then you bow. And no. nobody, no. nobody no. should no. use... No. Oh, okay, then you don't. <laughs> but if you had to, nobody could use Jewish law as a justification for not doing so. Yes? What about the prostration rather than just a bow? Um, if that's what's required by the norms, the dina de dina, the law of the land is the law. That's what's required. That's what you do. Um, I mean, it, it's famous that uh, Jews don't kneel. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, every um, serious Jew, and I divide the world between serious Jews and unserious Jews, and I can't be bothered with any of the other divisions, um, every serious Jew ha who has been knighted by the Queen has requested the right to kneel on one knee, which has always been granted, right, which is cute, but not essential, uh, and probably gives rise to that famous Queen's question, which you all know, I presume, why is this knight different to all other knights? Yes, okay, right, right. okay. Um, right, so, um, so uh, his excuse, his reason for not bowing down to Haman is, is itself a bit odd. But anyway, one way or another, Haman decides he's going to wipe out the Jews 
And he goes to Achashverosh and he tells a classic anti-Semitic tale, which is the Jews are a people who don't keep your laws. They keep themselves separate, they're a different group of people, and they don't keep your laws. That's the mean little additional bit, which of course is not true at all. Right, as we know, because Mordechai has been a loyal fellow and so forth. Um, so Achashverosh goes, yeah, sure, sure, I don't care, do it. Right? Because he needs some money back anyway. He spent, squandered huge amounts, and he's probably drunk. Um, and so Haman sets about doing this, and he also builds his gallows in order to hang Mordechai. And his wife, Vashti, is a very interesting character. Vashti is a very... I'm um, sorry, not Vashti. Um, uh, Zeresh. Zeresh. Um, Zeresh is a very interesting character, because Zeresh is really smart. Zeresh absolutely gets it. I, mean, it, it, I would love to have spent uh, you know, a few hours in the Haman household watching Zeresh and Haman together. Because Haman is going, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. And Sarah says, okay, well, go on then. And he says, yes, I'm going to. She says, oh, I'm not sure. Right? And he goes, oh dear, it's all gone a bit wrong. She goes, well, that's the end of you then, isn't it? Right? She's got no real confidence in Haman at all from beginning to end. She's quite interesting character. Spot Zeresh next time you read the book. Um, so, so Haman's built the gallows, and he's all set to go and tell the king that's what he wants to do. And so he, and, and it's, it's so human and yet so odd Haman rushes off to tell the king in the middle of the night because he can't, he can't control himself, I mean what, what does he think is happening, he's going to go and stroll into the king's chamber at 3 o'clock in the morning and go I want to hang Mordecai you know, so very odd, right? but unbeknownst to him and just then right, the king cannot sleep right? the Midrash says that this is an allegory for God, that is God doesn't sleep, God's keeping an eye on the Jewish people, right Anyway, the king can't sleep, and so um, tossing and turning, and he calls to his courtiers, read me something, right? Something about my favourite subject, me, right? <laughs> and so they bring in the royal chronicles, and they read the story of Mordecai, and he says, what's been done to reward this fellow? And they, well, nothing as far as we can see. In comes Haman, right? And, and, and Achashverosh says to him, what shall I do to reward the man I want to reward? And Haman goes, oh, it's me. <laughs> Right? I mean, it's this tremendously human stuff. It's one of the most humanly perceptive books in the entire Tanakh. Right? Uh, and, and he says, well, I'd, I'd, I'd dress him up and go out and say, this is the man the king wants to. And this is where we get the fancy dress thing. Right? The whole thing is a, is a sequence of hidings, of people being obscured, of people not being who they really are. Right? And this being dressed up in the costume of the king is just another of those things, and, and therefore the tradition of fancy dress accentuates the topsy-turvy, confusing, unclear nature of things. The Queen, Esther, not being clear about being a Jew, Mordecai not being obviously her uncle, you know, all of those things. But now he's got to dress up, and, and Haman has to drag him through the street through gritted teeth, going, this is right? And he goes back and tells Zeresh, he goes, well, I reckon you're finished with, right? You can see Zeresh kind of nipping down her telephone book, thinking, I wonder if there's another man I can... <laughs> She's very smart. Um, anyway, uh, Esther, uh, Mordecai is strolling about in the sackcloth and ashes, never a man to miss an opportunity to make a striking impact, right? Strolling about in sackcloth and ashes, and Esther hears about this, and she calls him in or you know, gets a message to him, to go, what's going on? And he says, there's this decree, and you've got to go in and tell the king to get this stopped, right? And Esther says, I could die, you know, that I'm not allowed to go in. And Mordecai, loving uncle that he is, says, well, fair enough, you'll die anyway. It doesn't make any difference. If you don't help, somebody else will help. 
Just kind of not, not a flicker of a moment of, oh dear, I know that's difficult, but nevertheless, right? Not at all. Right? Not at all. So she says, all right, I'll do it. Tell everybody to fast for me and I'll go in and do it. Right? She goes in and the king says, what do you want? Anything you want. You can have half of my kingdom. It's up to you, whatever you like. And she says, actually, come to a party. Right? She loses her nerve and invites Haman as well. And Haman's just kind of knocked out by this and tells Zeresh, it's great. And she's going, oh, I'm not convinced. Right? And, yes? Who, Esther? Mm -hmm. Well, it might be, but you've got to wonder why she drags it out so long, unless it's for the sake of the story, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, they turn up for this booze up anyway. Haman and, and the king turn up for the booze up, and they and, and the king says, "What is it? What do you want? What do you want? Just tell me. What do you want?" And she says, "What I'd like is well, the thing is, come to another party. Oh, please. I mean, she's dragging it out." Right, uh, it's true. It, films have to last 120 minutes now. So, um, so she, uh, they come to another party, and the king says, "What's going on? Come on, tell me." And she says, "Somebody's planning to destroy my entire people." Right? They're still having. I mean, what kind of secret police have they got here? <laughs> they don't know where she's from. She's been chatting to Mordecai every 10 minutes. The bloke's been strutting about in sackcloth and ashes. Nothing's been noticed. Right? So anyway, one way or another. He says, well, what is it? And she says, it's Haman. He's going to destroy my people. All right. right. The king, appalled at this terrible behaviour on the part of Haman, storms out. Haman, who's, of course, drunk, they're all drunk, um, staggers over to Esther to go, oh, please help me, and trips over. It's a piece of pure farce. <laughs> trips over and sprawls all over her on her couch. In comes the king and sees Haman sprawled all over Esther and says, oh, now you're trying to rape her. OK, that's it. You're out. Right. Okay, and Haman gets dragged off in chains. Or whatever they used in those days. Um, hmm? They covered his head first. They covered his head first, well, yes. Okay. Another hiding. Another hiding. Well, okay, all right, fair enough. Um, so, uh, and so then uh, the king goes through this with Esther and says, well, there's nothing I can do. I can't change the law because the, the king of the Medes and the Persians, as well-known factors, um, uh, even a kind of a, um, a saying as, as immutable as the laws of the Medes and the Persians, right? Once the king has made a law, because the king is supposed to be divine, he can't change his mind, right? So having put out the decree that the people can indeed attack the Jews, the only thing he can do is he can't rescind the decree. The only thing he can do is arm the Jews to fight against the people that he's now told. I mean, how cynically unpleasant is that? It's perfectly clear, isn't it, that the Kasferos could not care less about how many people die in this whole process. Right? The thing is, he cannot rescind his decree, and therefore the only thing he can do is set the Jews up to fight back. And so they do. And they're victorious. And Mordecai is, uh, replaces Haman. Here's a little clue. Once Mordecai has replaced Haman... He institutes a tax across all the 127 provinces of the kingdom. Right? It, it accentuates that so much of this was economic. The king had to rebuild his finances. Haman's solution was attack this group of people, wipe them out, take their possessions. Mordecai's solution was we'll take a little from everybody. That's the fair way to do it. There's a lovely closing line in the Haggadah, in the um, Megillah, 
where it says that Mordecai became the leader of all the Jews and um, most of them supported him. <laughs> it's just so wonderfully typical, right? You know, that, that even then they didn't all think he was grand. Yes? So what is the quote that says that after all the other festivals are no longer uh, observed, that Purim will always remain? Yes, it's, it's in the Talmud. It's a Talmudic statement that Purim will always be observed. Um, yeah, because I think, I mean, I think the rabbis could see that it was jolly good fun. Um, you know, and, and they liked fun, the rabbis. I mean, I was at a shul somewhere recently talking about Jewish history, and somebody said, you know, that there are so many fasts and miserable things and so on in the, in the calendar. But of course, when you look at it, the calendar is full of celebratory events and very, very few fasts indeed. Right, taken overall, there are, what, six or eight fasts or something in the entire year, right? And there are about 80 celebratory days. I can see some of you thinking 80. Right? But of course, there's 50 Shabbatot. Right? They're all celebratory feast days. It's feast day every week. My daughter, who's away at university um, where there are no Jews, uh, invites her non-Jewish friends around for Friday night dinner and forces them to sit through Kiddush and benching all sorts. And they think it's amazing. They think it's like Christmas every week. They go, it's a horrible thing. Right? Just take it for granted. Right? So it's got this huge um, number of celebrations. The rabbis love celebrations, like it very much, um, and did not want to add any more fast days. So if something horrible happens, stick it on one of the existing fast days. Right? Um, so I think they like Purim a lot. But, I mean, to be fair... Uh, the rabbis were always speaking in some kind of hyperbole over this or that. And I suspect that Purim was also continuously under threat um, as, a, as a rather frivolous day, as a not really important day, as something that didn't really say anything too much about God and religion. So the rabbis will have said, oh, no, it's very, very important. You go, exactly how? And they go, oh, we're not going to tell you that. Um, so I think that Purim is clearly a frivolous day. It's a carnival day. I want you to remember what Haman's original plan was. Haman's original plan was to wipe out the Jews and take all their property. This suggests they've got a lot of property. Right? Don't, don't fall into our usually Schwerzsteiner-Yid story that the Jews were all grim, poverty-stricken folk. These were a powerful bunch of people, not least, of course, Mordecai and Esther, right, who found their way into court. And they were there, there or thereabouts. Right? So, I mean, I, I think we've got to recognize that this is not a weak group of people. Um, I remind you, uh, again, some of you will have heard me comment on this, uh, you know, the Jews of Arabia at the time of Muhammad are a powerful bunch of people. Right. Um, so almost certainly the Jews were powerful and significant in the Persian kingdom. Uh, after all, the Persian king had always approved and supported the Jews in, in the early stages. He, he funded their return to rebuild the, the temple. Right? So the idea that the Jews are somehow some helpless little group of people, it's quite interesting that Haman doesn't explicitly tell Ahasuerosh who he's going after. Right? And that's quite possibly, because if he did, Ahasuerosh would go, oh, wait a minute, no, not them. 
It's really very unclear who's, you know, who's being talked about in this because I think the Jews have quite a lot of status. Um, and the fact that Mordechai takes over um, doesn't seem to me to be surprising at all. And there also doesn't seem to be anything much in the story that suggests, you know, that there was resentment about a, a Jew taking over or having a Jewish queen or anything else like that. It didn't seem to be problematic. It just wasn't possible at the time. Hmm? It just wouldn't have been possible. Wouldn't it be possible what? For, for Ashbaris to take on India. I don't think it would have been possible. Why not? 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 for a king in one place to have, especially multiple brides, uh, multiple wives, to have princesses and such from other kingdoms. Indeed, Solomon did that um, to his own comeuppance in due course. Um, but I don't find that surprising at all. And there doesn't seem to be, I mean, the Book of Esther doesn't in any way seem to suggest that this is a remarkable outcome. It's a happy outcome. It's a gratifying outcome. But it doesn't say this is astonishing against all possible odds. Um, that, that there would be a Jewish queen and, and indeed a Jewish grand vizier. And indeed, Jewish grand viziers are commonplace through history. They're scattered about all the time. Joseph. Hmm? Well, Joseph is one, absolutely, but Daniel is another, I mean, that we got from the Bible itself. Yes? There is a mentioning of God in, in Esther when she tells them to go and fast and go pray to God. Well, she doesn't say pray to God. She tells them to fast and pray. Yes, but you pray. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, yes. But it's not explicit. That's the point. The name of God is not in the book. That's the presence. Oh, look. The 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 rabbis certainly saw a God overarching the whole thing, right? Well, and then you can look at it. It's like the what happened. It was preordained. That's why she. And more the high told Esther to do that because it had to, it was preordained that she would save the people. If you like that, good. What, what's worrying me now is that you seem to want to take it all seriously. <laughs> right? I mean, I'd urge you to take, you know, Shabbat seriously or, or Sukkot or Hoshana Rabbah, you know, but Purim, please. Right? Lighten up. It's a joke, Purim. Right? It's a joke you're supposed to enjoy, but I mean, I don't think we should dress it up in anything Bible. too significant. It has to have a hmm? It's in the Bible. It has to have a message. No, it's in the, it doesn't have to have a message. It's in the Bible. Then you've got to decide, does it have a message or not? Right? We may not want to agree with those rabbis who put it in there. Are we allowed? <laughs> How naughty is that? What's this series called? Almost Nothing Sacred? <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, I want to stress again, I'm not saying that the miracle was invented by the rabbis, 
right? Uh, the miracle may have been so axiomatic, so obvious, so well known, that it just didn't, you know, nobody bothered to mention it. It was known. It was a fact, right? It may have been that the writer of the Book of the Maccabees was trying to write something um, more military or historical, and therefore didn't want to pay attention to that particular aspect of things. We have no idea, right? We simply don't know. Um, what we do know is that the rabbis felt that the Maccabee record didn't have sufficient status to get into the Bible. But what seems to be the case is that the people were determined to celebrate Hanukkah. It was being celebrated, right? I mean, the rabbis were very good at going with the flow. Oddly enough, and although they mask it brilliantly, they still are. I, I must tell you, I, uh, as you probably all know, I, I come from out of an Orthodox community. And at Pesach time, we get an email round from our rabbi, which tells us how to kosher your kitchen, right, for Pesach. He's an Orthodox rabbi, right? So he says, ideally, you know, burn it down and start again. I mean, let's say, you know, move out, build a new house, right? If you can't do that, take a blowtorch to it and hydrochloric acid and scrub it to within an inch of its life and start, you know, resurface everything and so on. If you can't do that, just use um, abrasive acid and hot ashes and scorch the top off. And uh, If you can't do that, then use, you know, um, a, a scouring powder and scrub everything. Right. If you can't do that, then rub it all that right. And it kind of sums up at the end. If you can't do that, just kind of wipe it with a cloth, you know, right? <laughs> You know, what we've got in this, in, this, um, in this process, the rabbis perceive, and we may not agree with them, right? or we may, in some contexts and not in others, the rabbis perceive that the more you do to manifest your dedication to a God-centred life, the better. We may say, Oi vey, so much do we have to do all that? Why can't we do the easy thing? It doesn't have to be so complicated, right? But there is this idea of lumhadrin to make something beautiful by making it more demanding, right? Now, that's something that doesn't sit easily with most of us. So picking out something and celebrating it, marking it, is, is a, a lovely rabbinic thing to do. The more celebrations, the better. The more opportunities, the better. The more moments to mark God's hand in the world, the better. Right? So I can't imagine that they would have resisted Hanukkah as a festival. What they might have resisted is the potential narrative that the Sadducees might have put upon it, which is Hanukkah proves that we're supposed to rule. Right? And they might have wanted to resist that and therefore accentuate the other thing, that it comes from God. Yes? So given your comments that Purim isn't all that substantial and important a holiday. Yeah, the book of Esther is a, is a good read. Um, but what was about it that it was so substantial and important that was codified as part of the Tanakh? Difficult to say, really difficult to say. Um, some of you may know, and it's difficult to know how to read the different statuses of these different events. Um, but uh, if one goes into the classical liturgy, we find that um, on Hanukkah, um, we read Hallel. Hallel is the um, liturgical insertion for festival days. And we read it only on festivals which are commanded in the Torah. Rosh Chodesh, um, and the three pilgrim festivals, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And Hanukkah. 
right? This is very, very odd. But one assumes that the Sadducees got their hands on Hallel because it was a temple thing. And so the Sadducees will have instituted Hallel for Hanukkah. But Purim doesn't get a Hallel. Purim gets an extra paragraph in the Amidah, but it doesn't get a Hallel. All right? Uh, and, and so that puts it on the, in the pecking order, lower down the heap, in terms of importance in, in the classical Jewish mind. Right? And Purim is a very frivolous event. I mean, what are the four, the four um, mitzvot of Purim? Right? The first, in no particular order, the first is to read the book of, of, of Megillah, right? which we know uh, twice. Well, I'm simplifying here because the rabbis always make twice if they can. Right? Okay? And the first is to read the book of, a book of Megillah, um, which, as we know, doesn't mention God unless you want to say, well, uh, they must have been praying for somebody. Okay. Right. Right. okay. So that's the first thing you have to do. The second thing you have to do is have a big feast. Oh, you can have a big feast any day, but on Purim you have to have a big feast, and remarkably and uniquely, the big feast of Purim is at the end of the day. In, in most Jewish practices, the big feast starts the day, but in Purim, the Su'udah is at the end of the day. So if it's Purim on, on Monday night and Tuesday, you have your big feast on Tuesday afternoon, evening. Right? Why? Because the Jews could relax at the end of the day of Purim and feast. They couldn't do it at the beginning because they were fighting uh, the Persians or whatever. Um, so that's the second thing. The third thing is to give gifts to the poor. Matanot la'avionim. To give gifts to the poor, you must give at least two gifts, because it's in the plural, so you must give at least two gifts to the poor. So it's not good enough to write a check to charity, you've got to write two checks to charity. Right? Or, or go however you want to give gifts to the poor. Okay? And the third and the fourth thing is Mishloach uh, Manot. Again, gifts to friends, um, and at least two, because again, it's in the plural. Uh, and this has to be foods which are immediately edible. And it's no good giving somebody a tin of baked beans, right? Because they've got to cook it. They've got to open it. Uh, but no, I don't think the opening is a the problem. They've got to cook it, right? So you can't do that. You can't give them a lump of dough and say, there you go, make your own bread, right? It's got to be something they can eat straight away. Um, these are the four mitzvot of Purim. How about drinking? It's not, well, Yada is later. That's, that's Talmud again. Right. right, that's Talmud again. This is in the Megillah. These are the four fundamental mitzvot. If you don't drink Yada until you don't know um, whether to bless Mordechai or curse Haman, or is it the other way around? I don't know. Right? Um, that's Yada until you don't know. Um, but it's not a mitzvah of Purim. It's a minhag of Purim. If you don't get drunk on Purim, you haven't failed. Rabbi Derek made a point to get drunk. Well, yes, I'm sure rabbis like the opportunity, but it's not the same. And especially Hasidic rabbis who are very into, into drinking. Um, Hasidim believe that, uh, you know, vodka loosens the spirit, right? Um, on any occasion, let alone Purim. Um, but uh, but it's, not, it's, not a mitzvah, it's not one of the classic four mitzvot of Purim. Right? What is the common feature of those four mitzvot? They don't involve God. Right? The reading of the Megillah, you're supposed to hear in, uh, in community. That it's not good enough to sit at home and read the Megillah. I mean, obviously, if there's nobody else around, that's your only option. But ideally, you should go to the community to hear the reading of the Megillah. The feast is to be done together. 
The poverty is to, the, the giving to the poor is to include the poor in your community. To give to friends is to interact. Purim is the classic, archetypal, total social day. All you do on Purim is slap about meeting people. Right, bumping into folk, taking stuff, collecting stuff, giving stuff, receiving stuff. That's what you do on Purim. Right? It's not godless, because of course every Jew knows that social interaction involves God, even if you don't believe in him. Right? But it's a different kind of dynamic on Purim to the dynamic that exists on all the other days. Yes? One more question. Oh, one. Let me get to I just wanted to mention I, I had uh, I had a reason that I had to reread the book of Esther, and I found that I have the Sanchino books of the five Megillo, and I can commend that to anyone because it has commentary like uh, we have for Torah, and it's very interesting. It has a lot of historic. And it's a fun book to read with astonishing things, and it's very small, the book of Esther. That's oh, it really is. Do read it, guys. That wasn't a question, so we'll take the last question. <laughs> I just wanted to ask about the, the dressing up in the costume so that uh, our children become Esther and the king and the queen. When that all started, was well, it early on, or did that happen in more in modern times? It's probably medieval. It's probably medieval, uh, which is when everybody got involved in dressing up. Um, uh, but um, originally, of course, it was dressing up as the characters, in, you know, and not least for a Purim spiel or something like that. Um, it's important to notice that Purim, of course, falls around March or so. And, and, well, that's right. What I was going to say was there is a tendency, rather like I said about Hanukkah, is a period of times of... Of, of festivals of light, there is a tendency at springtime, in early spring, to have these uh, Dionysiac festivals. Um, of course, the Greeks had the actual Dionysia. They had the Lenea, and then they had the Great Dion, the Lesser, and the Great Dionysia. Um, uh, and we have uh, various different Dionysiac-type festivals, whether it's Mardi Gras um, and the whole uh, Shrove Tuesday kind of thing, or whether it's um, Holi in the in the um, Hindu. Uh, calendar, which is all to do with squirting coloured water. Those of you who are not into phallic symbolism won't understand that. Um, and and we have Purim, um, so there's something which is um, which is obviously going on there, which relates again to human need as as the sap starts to rise to get into this kind of enthusiasm. Um, but the costuming, of course, nowadays, you know, people dress themselves up as Darth Vader or whatever. Um, but it was originally you got into the costume of the different characters of the, of the thing. I, I'm, I see Ari getting... Uh, <laughs> I don't know any day was it British or pagan? Or... Well, May Day is pagan and, yeah. and British, but of course that's a couple of months later, and that's the beginning of, of summer yeah. as opposed to spring. Uh, and of course, entirely phallic. You don't dance around a pole unless you're. Okay, and I don't mean somebody from Poland, of course. Okay, we're done. Thank you, folks. That's the end of the series. <laughs>